go to the Lord in a word of prayer now. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would draw us nearer to Jesus. Lord, all of us are on a journey, as we just sang, a journey that tests our hearts day in and day out. We know what it's like to go through hard things, painful things, and we know what it's like to go through times of joy. And I pray that no matter what each one here is going through, that when we wake, we would be satisfied with your presence and with your likeness. Father, I pray that uh, you would be with us now as we look at your word and as we celebrate ultimately what your son Jesus Christ has done for us. I pray that we would make much of Jesus together this morning. That is the goal in every sermon is to exalt the risen Christ. Sermons are not a passive thing. We want to worship over the text together. And I pray that you would help us do that. That you would cut through sleepiness and that we would hear from you what you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we are in Leviticus, just like last week. Um, This will be the last sermon in Leviticus. So just a short time in the book, two sermons. And then next week, uh, we start uh, the book of Numbers. And uh, I'm not exactly sure yet. Brian and I have to plan out Numbers, right, Brian? Uh, Probably... Four to, four to eight sermons in numbers, anywhere, somewhere in there. So, what I'd like to do is give us a brief recap of what we saw in Leviticus last week, and then I'll dive into chapters 16 and 17, mostly chapter 16, which is at the very heart of the book of Leviticus. It's the third book of your Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is at the center of what we call the Pentateuch, or the Torah, which is what we're preaching through right now. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus is in the middle. And chapters 16 and 17 are at the heart of Leviticus, the very center. And so you could say that these chapters that we're going to be looking at today, they are actually at the heart of the Pentateuch, of those first five books. So anyway, last week... We talked for a few minutes about the significance of the tabernacle, this tent that Israel was supposed to make or build in their midst. Do you remember what this tabernacle was all about? Ultimately, um, since Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden, humans have been unable throughout the Bible's story to enjoy life in the presence of God. Humans are too sinful, too rebellious, and God is far too holy and pure for us to dwell together without humans getting destroyed for their evil. And so what the tabernacle is, is God's temporary solution to this dilemma. I say temporary because ultimately, as we heard from Hebrews this morning, the tabernacle and all that stuff points to Jesus. And we'll end there today. But basically, what the tabernacle was, was a small-scale replica of a, of a new creation that was inside the old 
creation that was filled with sin. Picture this. You've got the old creation filled with human evil and darkness. And God cannot dwell there because of the darkness. More on that in a second. But God puts the tabernacle there, a safe space where he can dwell like a little new creation within the old creation. And the tabernacle had three sections to it, just like the original creation can be seen as having three sections. There's a garden in the land of Eden, and then there's the rest of the earth in the original creation. Adam and Eve would walk with God and enjoy fellowship with him in the garden, which was in the land of Eden, and from there they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the rest of the earth. Three sections of the original creation. And because of their sin, Adam and Eve, they're driven out of that garden of Eden. And cherubim guarded the way back in. These angelic beings. This corresponds to the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, you have the holy of holies. The most holy place, some of your translations might say. Where God's presence resided in its greatest intensity. The most holy place was like a replica of the throne room of God, of the garden that God placed in Eden so long ago. And the way into the most holy place in the tabernacle was guarded by a veil which had what stitched on it? Remember? Cherubim. It's guarded by cherubim, just like the garden after Adam and Eve were driven out. Then outside that holy place, you had the next place. The, the most holy place was the holy place. And then outside of the tent, you had the outer court, where the altar was, and the bronze basin for washing and purifying yourself before entering into the holy place. Nothing that smelled of death or sin or decay or disease was to come anywhere close to this little model of the new creation but especially not into the innermost sanctum, the holy of holies. Nobody was to just waltz in there, ever. We, lo- we talked last week about two guys who did. Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. Remember those guys? They offered strange fire, unauthorized fire before the Lord in their censers, and they were struck dead. What they did would ultimately have been like Adam after he'd been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, walking up to the cherub and said, hey, step aside, I'm going in again. No. No. Not apart from the way that God will make, that we'll learn about today. What's more, we talked about this just briefly last week, but it's most likely from things we see in, in Numbers Chapter, I mean, uh, Leviticus chapter 10, that uh, Nadab and Abihu were drunk when they entered in. So just like Adam had sinned with the fruit of the vine, now they want to, they sin with the fruit of the vine and they want to go in and talk with God and be with God. So anyhow, we learn from Nadab and Abihu that you don't go waltzing into the holy of holies. No, we learn in chapter 16, chapter 16 of Leviticus, that only one man could go in, only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And that was a huge day. Once a year, a symbolic Adam would stand 
in the presence of the living God once more, representing all the rest of God's people. He would be beyond the cherubim, symbolically standing again in the garden. And this Adam would be a priest, a high priest, representing all the people before God. This story, this chapter is so important. Chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, that it's actually at the very center, like I said earlier, of Leviticus. And last week, I showed you how Leviticus was structured, basically like a big sandwich, which, with three similar sections on either side of the Day of Atonement in the middle. The book starts with chapters 1, and, 1 to 7, giving descriptions of, of ritual sacrifices that the Israelites were to make to the Lord. Some for saying thank you, some for saying I'm sorry for my sin. Chapters 8 to 10 give details about the guys who are supposed to make these sacrifices on behalf of the people. Priests. Chapters 11 to 15 talk about how to stay clean, to be qualified to stand in God's presence. You get the clean and unclean laws. Then you get chapter 16 and 17, Day of Atonement. And then we see a similar structure in reverse order. Chapter 18 and 20 talk about moral purity and chapters 21 to 22 talk about the priests of the Lord, how they're to stay pure in God's sight. And then chapters 23 to 25 talk about ritual feasts that the Israelites were to observe. And then you have the conclusion. So, again, you have rituals at the end of the book, the beginning and the end. Then in the middle you have stuff about priests. And then you have stuff about purity. And then you have the Day of Atonement. That was the structure that we saw last week. And now, let's dive in to Leviticus chapter 16. We'll look, I'm going to, what we're going to do next, I'm going to read the whole chapter, okay, and just listen carefully to the details of the chapter. Then we'll look at four things in the text, and then we'll apply the text to our lives through what Jesus has done. So, Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. So in other words, you saw what happened to Nadab and Abihu? Don't do that. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Verse 3, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on a linen turban. These are the sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite communion... Community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it to the Lord for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin 
offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood with his finger and sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. Remember this atonement cover thing? This mercy seat is on the Ark of the Covenant, this covenant box that had the ten tablets, the ten commandments written on the tablets in it. So that's what this atonement cover thing is. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel." Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put them on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task, and the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness." Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the tent, er, into the camp. The bull and goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterwards, he may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. Notice that atonement, cleansing from sin, brings rest. I don't know if you've experienced that in your own life. I pray you have. The priest who is anointed 
and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. So, what I'd like to do next is work through Leviticus 16 in four steps. And I've, I've put these four steps together in a way so that they could be said in one sentence. One sentence. And this sentence is what I see to be the main idea of the Day of Atonement, of chapter 16. Here's this sentence. One, if another Adam is to lead God's humanity back into God's presence. Two, he must be a pure priest. Three, who pays sin's price. And four, who removes sin's defiling effects. So, I'll say it again. If another Adam is to lead humanity back into God's presence, because remember in the garden we got kicked out? If another Adam is to lead humans back into God's presence, he must be a pure priest who pays sin's price, and removes sin's defiling effects. So we'll start with that first phrase. Another Adam. If another Adam is to lead us back into God's presence, remember, that's what we really, really need as human beings. Last week, I compared God and His holy presence to the sun. The sun that we see today is a good, life-giving entity. But you wouldn't want to keep it in your living room, right? In a similar way, God is pure and holy, and he's just, and he's good. He's beautiful. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And you wouldn't, you should, you, we should want to spend eternity in his presence, The Psalms of the Bible are filled with reflections like this. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Another psalmist says, As for me, it is good to be near God. Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked the Lord, that I shall seek, that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To meditate in his temple. It is good for us to be near God. We were created for that. We were created to be in relationship with God. And to find life in the presence of the God of life. And the great tragedy of the Bible. Is that we try to find life elsewhere. In created things. In false gods. And ultimately. Life on our own terms. We've become rebels. And our hearts have become darkened. All of us. That's the Bible's assessment of every human who's ever been born anywhere since the time of Adam. And so we have a big problem. The presence of God is what we need more than anything else in the universe. And yet, when God's presence comes into the world that's darkened by our sin and our rebellion, His light brings death to our darkness. When you walk into a dark room and you flick on a light switch, the darkness dies. It's gone instantly. 
And in the same way, when God shows up, evil cannot remain. And since you and I are evil, apart from Jesus, we are evil and broken and sinful to our core. This is a really big problem. How can we get back into God's presence if we are darkened by sin? So the thing we most desperately need to be with God is the thing that would seem impossible for sinners like us to have, life in God's presence. That point was hammered home in a tragic way when we saw Nadab and Abihu struck down for bringing their darkness into the holy of holies. And they were consumed. Darkness dies in the light. That's not because God is evil or dark or scary. It's because he's good and he's just. We're the problem, not him. If we struggle as we read through the Bible with accepting the wrath of God against human evil, it's usually because we've minimized in our own minds and hearts the seriousness of human sin. How could a good God destroy sinners? How could he spare them after the evil that we have done and continue to do? That's the proper question. How can, a, how can light not destroy darkness? How can that happen? We need to become light in the Lord. How can we have our sins forgiven? How can we? So again, we desperately need to be in God's presence to find life both now and forever. And so we need another Adam to take us back to fix what the first Adam messed up. We need another someone to represent us before God, to go into the Holy of Holies again, to go back to the garden and make things right. To go back into God's presence with obedience and purity. So, here's the second step. If another Adam is to lead us back into God's presence, second, he's got to be a pure priest. He can't have any of the defilement of Adam the first about him. So in our passage this morning, Leviticus 16, I read several places where the high priest, who's supposed to go beyond the veil, past these cherubim, guarding the entrance to the Holy of Holies, into the very throne room of God, this high priest had to purify himself first. In verse 3 of chapter 16, he's to offer a bull for his own sin. The sin of a priest is serious. His sin's got to be dealt with. And the only way for it to be dealt with is for the bull to die in his place as a substitute for his sin. Then in verse 4, he's supposed to bathe himself with water and put on special linen garments that symbolize his purity before the Lord. In verses 12 to 13, he's supposed to take incense and burn it in a special cup called a censer as he entered beyond the veil. And the incense would make a sweet-smelling cloud that would obscure the throne room of God, symbolically blocking this priest's view from the face of the living God. Because God says to Moses, um, Exodus 33.20, No man can see my face and live. You don't look at the sun without sunglasses. In the same way, you don't go into the presence of God's throne room without this cloud as a sinful human being. And so, you would create your own cloud to block 
your, your, your gaze. And so the high priest of Israel was to be, in that moment, a purified representative of God's people, going back into the Garden of Eden again to deal with sin's penalty, to deal with sin's defiling power. And having purified himself, this new Adam-like figure, again, he would walk beyond the cherubim and up to the covenant box, on which was the atonement cover, the mercy seat. The psalmist would sing about God that he sits enthroned above the cherubim. They would say, heaven is your throne, earth is your footstool. This is the image that we have from the Bible. That above these cherubim that would actually carve these two winged cherubim, not just on the veil, but these two winged cherubim were above the Ark of the Covenant, carved with their wings touching above this covenant box. And the idea is that this box would be the throne, of the footstool of God. He's seated in heaven. His footstool is on earth. You're entering into his very, foot, very throne room when you're coming up to this covenant box. And at the, on the top is what's called the mercy seat. There is mercy at the feet of Yahweh. That is the picture. At God's feet, on the top of this atonement box, is the mercy seat where his feet rests on his footstool. And you find mercy at his feet, but only through sacrifice. And we'll look at that next. The priest is supposed to do two things using two different goats. With the first goat, he pays sin's penalty. And with the second goat, he must remove sin's stains from God's people and God's tabernacle. Which, of course, remember, is a picture, this tabernacle, of the, of the new creation. We'll tackle that in a few minutes. But look at point three. This pure priest, if another Adam is to lead us back into God's presence, he's got to be a pure priest. And third, he must pay sin's price. Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16. After offering the bull for his own sins, the priest is to kill one of the goats and sprinkle its blood on the Ark of the Covenant, right on the mercy seat. Then he's to go out and sprinkle it on the altar outside the Holy of Holies. Remember, again, this tabernacle is a model of what new creation is supposed to be. And and yet this new creation, inside of this old dark creation, was getting defiled every day by the sins of those who filled the old world. And so once a year, these sins are covered over by the blood of a a spotless goat in their place. This goat gives his life. Sin destroys the world. The sin of the Israelites defiled, defiled the tabernacle. But the blood of the first goat covered over their sins and it purified the tabernacle that their sins defiled. Leviticus 17 tells us how. Leviticus 17 verse 11, God says this, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, blood symbolizes life. And so, The blameless blood of the goat. Remember, these goats were not just diseased, sickly goats that people didn't care about anymore. No, they were spotless. They were pure 
they were a symbol of perfection that God requires to enter his presence. doesn't mean that the goats were morally pure. This is just a picture. And this blameless goat's blood is spilled, showing that his life is, his spotless life, the blood is in the life, his spotless life is covering over everything that's been defiled by sinful life. And so everything becomes blameless in God's sight through the blood that covers, that goes between God's gaze and our darkness. The blood would cover over the blame and it would purify the Israelites and their tabernacle in God's sight. The, the goat would die so that they could live. It made atonement for their sins. But where would the sins go? If you just cover over, Carl, if you just cover over a gaping wound that's filled with bacteria with a band aid, what happens? It's going to get infected. It's not good. In the same way, sin can't just be covered over. Its stain is too deep. Its shame and its guilt too pervasive. They go right to our core. Sin has to be removed, cleansed. Paying for it isn't enough. Covering over it with a blameless life is only half of what's needed to deal with sin. And that takes us to what the priest needs to do with the second goat. Point four. He must remove sin's defiling effects from God's people and God's world. So, I'll say it again. If another Adam is to come and bring us back into God's presence, he's got to be a pure priest who pays sin's price and removes sin's defiling effects from God's people and the whole world. Leviticus 16, 21-22 He, this high priest, is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. I wonder how long that would have taken. I wonder if the goat had to be tied down to hold still as he's confessing all the sins, probably in general terms. God, my neighbor was... Worshiping Baal last week. I saw it. I confess his sins. Again, over and all the sins of the people, the priest confesses. And then here's this. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. And the man shall release it in the wilderness. Do you see what's happening? The second goat symbolically takes the sin of God's people and all the defilement and dirt of the things that they've done in their past and it, he, it brings it out of the tabernacle, this model of the new creation, out of the, out of the new creation and into the wilderness, into the desert, into the barren place. He's called a scapegoat. He bears our sins away, out of God's presence. Remember what happened when Adam sinned? He and his wife Eve, they're driven from the Garden of Eden. They're exiled. And so it is with this goat. The goat is exiled 
from God's presence, from the camp, so that God's people don't have to be. He bears their sin in his body as he's driven from the camp. God not only covers over our sins, his people's sins, with a blameless life, but he removes his people's sins. He removes our sins in such a way that we are free and cleansed from its defiling effects and from its guilt and from its shame. The result of these two offerings of goats is that the priest now, at the end of Leviticus 16, can take a ram. And in verses 24 and 25, he offers this ram up as a burnt offering to the Lord. On behalf of the whole nation, he's offering this ram up. You might not remember from last week, but the burnt offering was one of seven offerings. And this offering, you offer the whole animal up in flames to the Lord. And it was to express an individual person's desire to, for their whole self to ascend with the smoke, blameless in God's sight. I take this spotless bull and I burn the whole thing and it's just a way of showing. And first you push your hand down on its head saying, I am this bull or this sheep or this goat. You, you identify with it and then you burn it. And as the smoke goes up as a sweet smelling fragrance to the Lord, it's just a way of saying, I want to be in God's presence, pure and blameless. Like this bull is going up, like this spotless animal. It's just a symbol After the high priest covers sin, sends sin outside the camp, then he offers this burnt offering on behalf of a now purified people. And he's saying, we as a community want to be holy and blameless in your sight, O Lord. It's done on the behalf of the nation, showing they want to be in his presence. I hope you've seen as we've been walking through this passage hints of how this points to Jesus, to his work on the cross, in his life, in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. So now, if you've seen some glimpses maybe of how this might connect to Jesus, I want to connect the dots for you. Remember, if another Adam is to lead humanity into God's presence again. He must be a pure priest who pays sin's price and removes sin's defiling effects. And Jesus Christ, he is the last and final Adam who came as our perfect high priest. And like the first goat, Jesus covered over our sins once and for all time by his sacrifice on the cross. And like the second goat, Jesus takes our sins away forever If we trust him and they are placed upon him by faith in him, he takes our sins away forever into the grave. The worst kind of exile that you can imagine. Way worse than a goat being driven into a desert is the Son of God being driven into the tomb. And finally, when Jesus rose again on the third day, he left our sins in the grave and he ascended into heaven on the clouds.
And because Jesus has ascended after his sacrifice, he now is a high priest who can take us, his people, into the real presence of God, into the real throne room of God, not just the earthly copy called the tabernacle or the later temple. Jesus, because of his ascension, he is a high priest who doesn't just enter in one day a year. He's there 365 in the presence of the living God on our behalf. At the end of Luke's gospel, Brian read this for communion last week. But in Luke 24, verse 50, after Jesus has resurrected from the dead and he's about to ascend, Jesus does what the high priest was supposed to do in Leviticus 9. He raises his hands and he blesses his disciples. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm a priest. And as he's blessing his disciples, he ascends on the clouds into God's presence, into God's very throne room. Matthew tells us what he just said before he ascends. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And as Jesus, the one who has all authority, the last Adam who didn't fail like the first Adam, as he ascends into God's presence, he doesn't need a censer and incense to make his own sweet-smelling cloud. No, He's the Lord himself who has authority to ride the clouds. He's the son of Adam, the son of man from Daniel 7, verse 13, that Daniel had predicted would come. Daniel, so long ago, has a vision where he's standing in the throne room of God. And he's above the cherubim in God's very throne room. And he says, I saw thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his place. He says, I saw one like a son of Adam coming before the ancient of days, coming on the clouds of heaven. And to him was given authority over all nations. Jesus, at his ascension, after he has given the perfect sacrifice, ascends into heaven. He was offered up, Brian pointed out. That's literally in the text. He's offered up. Having offered a sacrifice, he ascends like the smoke of a sacrifice, not in smoke, but on a cloud, into the very throne room of God, And he sits down on a throne and is given all authority in heaven and on earth. The last Adam, the perfect Adam, has come. And he has made a way for us to go into God's presence. And as a perfect priest, Jesus didn't need to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. He had no sins. But he offered a sacrifice for our sins and the sins of the world I'll read what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Again, the high priest would offer sacrifices for his sins and the people's sins daily, but once a year in the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, he would offer a sacrifice. And it was to purify both himself and the people he represented. And to purify the tabernacle, this model of a, a new creation with all its faults. 
But Jesus, our final high priest, he offered himself as a sacrifice to purify his people and the whole world from sin and to start the work of new creation. And finally, remember how I said the priest offered the two goats? He would take a ram and offer burnt offering on behalf of the people, indicating the people's desire to be in God's presence, holy and blameless. That was after the sacrifice of the goats. Well, now through Jesus and through the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf, we, you and I, we are able to offer our sacrifices to the Lord and have confidence that they will be accepted by him since our sins have been dealt with forever. As the author of Hebrews concludes at the end of his letter, Hebrews 13, verses 15 to 16, the author writes this, Through him then, Jesus, let us continually offer, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Such sacrifices doing good, sharing what we have, having lips that praise the name of the Lord. Those are the sacrifices that God asks of the new covenant people. We don't offer a blameless lamb in our place so that then we can be blameless and able to offer these sacrifices. No, our lamb was slain for us already. He was offered up in our place. And now he represents us before the throne of heaven. And if you're connected to him by faith, then you know that God accepts your sacrifice, whatever it is. Not because it's a pure and blameless sacrifice in and of itself. You know how many of our good deeds are tainted with bad motives? Motives, desires to be seen, to be recognized, to be noticed. Desires to feel good about ourselves and not to make much of our king. Man, we are so fickle in our motivations. And yet, because of the blood of Jesus, we can offer our sacrifices boldly, knowing that his blood purifies them from any stain. And we can trust that God accepts them because he has accepted Christ's sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice makes our offerings to the Lord a sweet-smelling fragrance, not a stench of our pride and imperfections rising to the king. I'll close with a few thoughts here. First, there's not one single person in the world who has ever lived or will ever live who's qualified in and of themselves to enter into God's presence. Apart from the life of Jesus Christ and the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. We have no hope. We are like Nadab and Abihu. And that means that in this world, there's not really the good people and the bad people. Instead, there's everybody, and then there's our perfect high priest, Jesus. There's sinners, and then there's Jesus. And everybody needs Jesus. Apart from Jesus, the people who think they're good become proud and self-righteous and defensive when people point out their faults. 
The people who think they're bad become filled with shame and guilt and despair. Or they just take bad on as an identity and become proud of that. I'm so bad. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. Jesus came to make sinners blameless in God's sight. And he did this through his work on the cross. And that means that sinners are not in separate categories. All sin is serious. All sin needs a blameless priest to cover over it and to take away its defilement from our lives. I find it interesting when you look at different cultures, how some cultures freak out more than other cultures about different sins. You know, in America, we think, you know, one of the biggest sins that we hate is bigotry or hypocrisy. We just, we detest that. Um, But in a different culture, it might be adultery. We love adultery in America. We celebrate it. We encourage it. Oh, yeah, you deserve a wife that makes you happy. See ya. Listen, cultures are not the final word on sin. God is. And he views all of it seriously. All sin keeps us out of the presence of God. All sin calls out for a high priest to pay for it. There's no good people and bad people. Again, there's us sinners and Jesus and we need him. In the same way, there's only one category of Christian forgiven. Christian maturity is basically the process of learning what our forgiveness means and learning how to live as forgiven people. But the label over every Christian isn't failure, ooh, extra holy. Whoa, saint? No. The label over every, every Christian, every one of you, if you trust Jesus, God looks at you and he says, you're a saint. You are a saint. You are a holy one. Paul writes 1 Corinthians to the saints in Corinth. They're a messed up group. If you ever read Corinthians, okay, they are very messed up. Imagine... If in our church, everybody was suing everybody, bringing each other to court. I mean, that's only one of the many things that was going on in Corinth. And Paul calls them saints, not because they're perfect, but because the blood of the lamb has covered over their sins and their sacrifices, no matter how messed up and broken they are, are accepted by God. Go close with the words of Paul to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, darkness will not enter into God's presence. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, the unrighteous will not be there. Here has a list now. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of my favorite words in the Bible come next. And such were some of you. But you were washed. 
You were sanctified. That means declared holy. You were justified, declared right, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God has declared us righteous, not because of our perfect lives, but because of our perfect high priest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus, and I pray that you would help us to glory in his sacrifice, that we would rejoice in our label, forgiven ones, saints in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for each one of us sitting here today that the identity of saint would be so burned into their minds and hearts that they would never doubt your love or your acceptance. Help us look to Jesus and not to our own walk for our confidence before you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would stir in all of us a longing to live and offer sacrifices of our whole lives to you because of what you've done for us. And I pray this in your name. Amen.